Good morning. So this morning we're going to talk about the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali, and I actually thought that I might read it as well, as it's only 196 compact observations on the nature of consciousness and the liberation, and it remains as this author says, unrivaled in its penetrating insight. The brief manages cut to the heart of a human dilemma. Uh, nearly 2,000 years old, it uh, weaves the threads of ancient yogic knowledge into a detailed map of human possibility. And uh, he says it stands uh, as a testament to heroic self-awareness, defining yoga for all time. So he goes on and says, um, even today, at a distance of two millennia, we can be sure that uh, Pantanjali's inward quest arose from a deeply ingrained desire to extract happiness and meaning from the mysteries of life, consciousness, and mortality. He goes on to say, in fact, yoga now enjoys an unprecedented and even growing popularity in the East and West. However, most of the yoga practice worldwide today would be unrecognizable to earlier yogis like Pantanjali, who attained realization in meditative stillness. He had lived some seven centuries later, if he had lived some seven centuries later in the 10th century instead of the third, his symptom might well have incorporated movements from the leading form of yoga now practiced, hatha, which was developed in part to temper the body-mind and focus his energies for meditation. In Pandali's era, though, the yoga posture, or asana, was simply a means of sitting as steadily and effortlessly, effortlessly as possible, and was not an exercise system of any kind. This older contemplative yoga has come to be known as Raja Yoga, royal or exalted path. Right? So indeed, when Patanjali uses the word yoga, he uses, uh, well, he means yoking. Its root, yul, or yok, yoka, yoga, as it's sometimes pronounced, is a direct forerunner of the modern word yoke. The practice of yoga is uh, meant to rein in the tendency of consciousness to gravitate towards external things, to identify with them and try to locate happiness in them. Steady practice at yoking teaches consciousness how to turn inward towards itself and realize the true, na true nature of its underlying awareness. Only then, he assures us, can we understand why we are alive, why we suffer, and how we might become happy and wise. So the experience of realization is not altogether unfamiliar to us. Most of us have had flashes of enlightenment at one time or another, usually when we find ourselves caught up in an absorbing event. Unfortunately, insight of this kind is a serendipity, more given than willed, and usually passes quickly. One of the profound wisdoms of the yoga tradition, though, is the recognition that the capacity to see into the nature of things is intrinsic. The yoking practice of yoga uh, arose as human beings actively sought to harness this faculty, while realization always has a spontaneous, unwilled quality. Systematic practice at stilling the body and mind through yoga makes it far more likely that we can enter and eventually abide in this kind of deep, absorb, absorptive knowing. So. Let me just reiterate, this is around 300 uh, AD, so around the exact same time as uh, um, 
what you would call this sort of a Buddhist school that was a mind-only school, an awareness school, a mind, um, and because I'm going to go on and actually talk about um, exactly this, but just uh, to highlight the fact that this would be around 300 A.D. or so. We're not exactly sure when, when he lived, uh, 2 to 300 A.D., where we believe, Pantanjali. Um, this is about the same time that uh, there was the same shift in the Mahayana tradition in Buddhism, uh, a shift towards a mind only, a shift towards a logic-based, uh, what you could call a Chittamatrana Yoga Kara school. So again, you're starting to see this this coalescence. Um, and again, as he said, you want to eventually abide in this kind of deep, absorb, absorptive knowing. That, I could argue, would be uh, sati patana, which is to reside in mindfulness or awareness, right? Or ishvara, or uh, depending on what uh, right uh, word you want to use, jhana, uh, jnana, Right, So he goes on and says, From Patanjali's perspective, most physical and mental actions arise from a fundamental misunderstanding of reality and therefore entails suffering. Uh, everything that exists in creation, he explains, is different from pure awareness. This includes not only the body and its sense organs, but also consciousness itself and its contents, such as sensation, thought, emotional feeling, and memory. Therefore, everything that we think of as me, physical, emotional, conceptual, spiritual, internal, external, is part of nature, or prakti. Now, in this view, all of me, even the innermost part, is material stuff, impermanent, and subject to cause and effect. Some of the stuff that me comprises is subtle, for example, the recognition of a familiar taste like an apple. Some of it is gross, such as the teeth that are chewing it. But all of oneself is prakti. Pure awareness, on the other hand, is not stuff of any sort that is therefore free of cause and effect. Right? So once again, pure awareness, on the other hand, is not stuff of any sort and is therefore free of cause and effect. It was never created and it never ends. Existing beyond time, even to use the word it, or assert that it exists, lends pure awareness a seeming substantiality uh, it does not possess. Because it is immaterial, it has no location, movement, or other natural properties, nor does it have anything in common with consciousness or thought, other than the role of observing them. It is literally intangible, impersonal, and inconceivable. So once again, well, of course, seems to be a convoy going by here while I'm trying to record the podcast. Uh, but you can see here not only a shunyata-type doctrine and an emptiness doctrine, which is um, uh, dependent origination. So what that means is cause and effect, right? Everything is empty of intrinsic um, substantiality because it's made up of all these little disparate parts. Exactly how this was explained. No different. The, the philosophies are 100% identical. And it goes on to say that Pantangeli's view, uh, pure awareness, or purusha, uh, that's why I, I waited on mentioning that, uh, that new term. Uh, it's what 
uh, actually sees creation unfolding. So it's that purusha, that pure awareness that sees the true nature of our existence. The screen of consciousness is the foundation of human experience. I love that. The screen of consciousness. And a part of the phenomenal world it represents, and under ordinary circumstances, it actually feels like the subjective eye that is observing everything. In Pantangeli's view, though, no aspect of creation, including including consciousness, can see itself because it is material stuff in the same way that a television cannot view its own programs. Consciousness requires a witnessing awareness. Indeed, just as the television exists not for its own sake, but for the viewer, consciousness is at the disposal of pure awareness. Or arguably vice versa. <laughs> right? Uh, your consciousness is actually what uh, is jading your uh, ability uh, to intrinsically see that pure awareness. So, he goes on to say, sorry, that was my own editorializing. However, he goes on to say, according to the Yoga Sutra, under ordinary circumstances, pure awareness has no sense of itself at all. Immaterial, unmoving, unconceptual, it is completely submerged, uh, submerged beneath the waves of consciousness. Like the rest of nature's stuff, consciousness is embroiled in an ongoing process of creation. Spiraling from form to form, pattern to pattern, the incessant repatterning of consciousness distorts its actual relationship to pure awareness. Although pure awareness is unchanging, its lack of substance or motion renders it invisible to consciousness. Uh, arguably kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the movement of the earth or the changing of, uh, of, uh, of uh, you, know, uh, you know, rock formations um, or the changing of the seasons. They move too slow for our consciousness to perceive them. But that doesn't change that they exist, right? So he goes on and says, um, says after all the contents of consciousness, perception, thought, memory, all made of stuff and arise from material transformations. Because of these attributes, consciousness, consciousness is an instrument poorly suited to detect the pure awareness that is watching it. In other words, consciousness is a thing that is only good at showing things. Like the rest of creation, the aspect that Pantanjali calls consciousness, or chitta, is evolving. Its evolutionary goal is to refine itself to the point where it can become so still, unmoving, and equally absorbed in all phenomena that it becomes very much like pure awareness itself. In that instance, it can reflect pure awareness back to itself, making it realize that it is distinct and separate from nature. In other words, the underlying purpose of creation is to reveal pure seeing to itself, right? So let's look at it from a, a Buddhist perspective. Um, the Abhidharma speaks that chittas are all separate. Your, your ear consciousness, your eye consciousness, and then of course just your volition, your consciousness itself. Each one of those thoughts, those volitions, those, um, uh, as he says, uh, um, what did he say here? Uh, well, it reflects back the pure awareness. Um, or, each one of those minds are born and die uh, upon each 
um, occurrence or interaction with something external or internal. And uh, so you can really see um, the, the, the coalescence here between um, the different uh, thought systems here, right? Because he, he simply speaks uh, here of consciousness, which, again, again, we're speaking in English, and we usually tend to, uh, to hold on to one definition of a word. But remember, consciousness in this case could mean um, self. Uh, it could mean um, ego, right? So this consciousness is both our tool, the mind, uh, to liberation, upaya, uh, but at the same time it's also our barrier to liberation because it, it provides us um, these selfish drives as well as these um, jaded perceptions, right? Hides this pure awareness with what we think is uh, our own uh, reality. But we again must realize that uh, all of these truths are actually hidden behind, behind um, our, uh, our sense organs. So we are unable to perceive um, this awareness directly. That's why they always speak of an innate um, power uh, to perceive this. Uh, because it does take a certain amount of ability. And that's why we always talk about nowadays. Um, that's why he mentioned that they added the physical uh, aspect of yoga. Uh, because if you look at the Tibetan yoga, it still remained mostly um, the, uh, the internal um, practice of yoga. Uh, they didn't add as much of the physical form. Now, there's Bodhidharma as well. He did the exact same thing. He initially taught um, the internal yoga style, right? Because he came from southern India at the exact, essentially, around the same time that all of this was developing. I mean, between 300 and 600 AD, uh, it seems to have had this mind only, whether you call it Zen or Chan or Chitta Matra or Yogacara or Madhyamaka, um, this middle way mind only, you know, you're in charge of not only your liberation but also your suffering. It's all around the exact same time. So Bodhidharma went in and arguably, um, the, the way the story goes, is he went pretty much everywhere but into China first. Um, and teaching, um, teaching not just um, his philosophy of the middle way, but also the martial way. Again, uh, maybe adding in what we have come to consider Qigong, Tai Chi, uh, Shaolin, Kung Fu. Uh, that uh, developed possibly from just um, a physical type, you know, predating Hatha, obviously, um, but a physical form of uh, yoga. Because, again, as the myths go, uh, the monks uh, had become, uh, again, obsessed with rites and rituals and, um, again, spending too much time sitting. And this is what I was getting at. Um, sitting is much easier... Uh, to calm all of those little minds, all of the chittas, your eye, eye consciousness and your ear consciousness and your nose consciousness. It's much easier to calm all those when you sit and be still. But arguably, our goal is not to become proficient at sitting and being still in a corner separate from uh, the world. Um, our practice 
should evolve to become uh, what they call integrated, integration, coalesce, coalesce uh, with all of our human experience. And that's why, once again, we talk about this uh, pure awareness. Uh, as Pantanjali talked about it, uh, is, is residing in this uh, pure awareness. Um, or the Buddha, I wrote specifically on this, Satipatthana. Or in, uh, in ancient Vedic, uh, I mean, you'd look at Pranayama. Pranayama, just like the sitting, was just a tool to help you focus, get comfortable, and be able to um, get into that state of awareness. Um, so Anapanasati, which is another practice in the Buddhist pantheon, which is mindfulness of breath. But the same thing can be said as I read yesterday, that when making offerings, um, it's actually a form of meditation in itself. Same as the chanting, right? To repeat a chant of Amitabha uh, or Amitofo or uh, Ami, Ami, well, it doesn't matter. In almost every language, uh, even in Tibetan, they'll venerate Amitabha. But you venerate uh, and use these uh, mantras not to gain blessing or protection or special powers. They are used as a mantra. Mantra is designed to focus the mind. It's not designed to uh, attract external energy. Same as karma. Karma is an internal force acting upon you. Using a mantra is designed to focus your own concentration. It's designed to, to, um, uh, to actually, uh, what's, uh, they love to use, uh, um, they, they just want to bring about that awareness, right? Um, and it can be used just like offerings, but originally the mantras um, were offered, again, just like the sitting, if you needed that additional help. Right, Because your goal is to be able to, as I just read, Pantanjali says, your goal is to reside in this, this awareness. So you are un, unaffected, untouched by um, the phenomena, the dharma, right? All things, your thoughts, other people's actions, uh, the weather, uh, you know, social issues. Right? As, as Rudyard Kipling said, uh, treat triumph and disaster as the imposters that they are. This is what we're being taught. You must treat uh, good and bad. Same. Otherwise, you're making judgments and you're showing preference, which is the opposite of the teaching. Right? So there's uh, the introduction to the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali. Um, I'm actually going to read uh, the sutra in its... Uh, different parts and um, yeah I hope you enjoy so have a lovely day and uh, the next uh, segment should be out uh, later today <laughs>